Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined by Walter Mays to discuss Bette Midler's Oscar-nominated performance in the 1991 film For the Boys. Walter, good to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, tell me a little bit about why you picked this movie and this performance to be talking about. Um, for gay men of a certain age, and I am 65, uh, Bette Midler is, uh, a totem. She is, she is crucially important to us. I can tell you that the summer of 1978, I played on my turntable. Yes, records. I played Bette Midler live at last over and over and over. It was her live album and it was amazing. Um, a great deal of my um, appreciation of comic timing and the stuff that she dragged from vaudeville into her live act when she was performing at the Bads in the 70s and then traveling around with her concert stuff. Um, that's really informed my, my view. Um, she's not, you know, they used to say that all gay men have to have one diva. She's not my one diva. My one diva is Anne Margaret. But, you know, that's a, that's a whole separate thing. But she's she's incredibly important, I think, to the development of screen comedy in the 80s. What she brought, because, you know, she comes she 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 comes on with the rose and then she kind of her career fell apart for a couple of years because they couldn't figure out what to do with her. And she made really bad choices for films. Um, and then she signed that incredible deal with Disney and did that, that stream of, you know, like five, six comedies in a row that, you know, one funnier than the other. Um, but her passion project was for the boys. She'd been working on this thing forever. She and Bonnie Bruckheimer, um, who is her co-producer at all girl productions. And they had been, really trying to figure out how to do this. And Disney didn't want to do it. Disney didn't want to do it. And 20th Century Fox wanted to get into the Bette Midler, Bette Midler business. And so they did it. And I am telling you that on Christmas Day, when it opened in 1991, I was at the theater watching For the Boys. And I come here today to praise Bette, not condemn her, even though I will admit this is not a good film. Yeah. But that... <laughs> as I'm sure you know from the nature of your podcast, is an ongoing theme. Yes. Yeah. Okay. However, I don't know if the Germans have come up with this word, but there really, really needs to be a word for art that we know is not good, but that we love passionately, because this is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, this was an interesting watch for me. I uh, I had not seen this before. I um I, I'm glad that I have someone uh, on this episode that is such a, a big fan of Bet because like I'm familiar with her I know her music I've seen fewer of her films than I probably should like I wasn't even like for someone of my age I I wasn't even raised on Hocus Pocus or something like that oh like, my I, goodness I I'm sure I, I've seen it 
probably when I was a kid, but I don't have enough memory of it to have even like retained that one. So I, I'm glad to have someone to be talking about that is uh, more familiar with her body of work in general. But this was uh, this was a movie that I had been sort of uh, cautious about because I've I've heard a lot of people saying they hate it. They don't like the performance. It, it, it has a not the best reputation among Oscar circles. And I maybe that gave me lower expectations. So I, I didn't dislike this one as much as I thought I was going to, uh, at least for the first hour or so. Um, but yeah, it'll be very interesting to talk about. Uh, so we are talking about For the Boys from 1991, directed by Mark Rydell, uh, who also directed The Rose, her, her other Oscar nomination, written by Marshall Brickman, Neil Jimenez, and Lindy Laub, based on a story by Jimenez and Laub, uh, stars Bette Midler, James Caan, George Siegel, uh, Patrick O'Neill, Christopher Rydell, uh, Ari Gross, Norman Fell. There's like... It's mostly just uh, Midler and Khan and Siegel and the different actors that play her son. Uh, but you have like uh, Billy Bob Thornton in a very like in like one scene. Vince Vaughn apparently is an extra. Uh, uh, so is Andy Dick, believe Andy it or not. Andy Dick, yeah. Richard Portnow, yeah. Xander Berkeley, uh, an uncredited Arliss Howard playing her husband, which he was plays her husband, and he's he's really quite moving in the part. And yeah, yeah. it's really wonderful. Yeah, uh, it opened limited uh, November 22nd, 1991, got a wider release on November 27th, did not do very well at the box office, uh, made $23 million uh, on a $40 million budget, uh, wasn't really all that critically well-received, it looked like, uh, it aside from her. Well, it wasn't critically blasted yeah. worth the disastrous box office numbers that it got the 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 reviews were like middling to fair is what they were except except the people that really loved what she did yeah which is probably a, about fair for the movie i would say like it, it it's not a disaster especially for the first hour i think it works really well in that first hour and then it just goes on for another hour and a half after that which is maybe the biggest problem with it uh, is just the runtime. But before we get into anything about the movie as a whole, let's talk about Bette Midler here, who I think is is pretty good. I think it's a, it's a solid performance. Just right. Oh, off I would head. I would absolutely agree. Um, she drives this picture through the sheer force of will. Um, and if you have never seen her do her live stage act, and I have seen every tour she's ever done. Um, it, she she approached this movie the same way she approached her stage performances, and that is, there's moments of levity, there's moments of up tempo numbers, there's moments of ballads, there's moments of uh, pathos, there's moments. I mean, it's it 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 offered her the whole enchilada. Everything that you can do in a movie is here in it. Costumes, dancing. I mean, it's just, it's there. But unfortunately, the era of the big musical was deader than dead. Yeah. And Disney was the thing that was reviving it this year with Beauty and the Beast, but it wasn't going to be happening on live film. Now, this isn't a musical where characters suddenly stop talking and then start singing. It isn't like that. They're all, you know, part of the, the storytelling. But even those movies had not performed particularly well. And and um, her, her solid insistence 
on making this like it is a 50s style movie musical right then and there may have damned the film from the very start because I don't think the tastes of the audience were there. But with a few momentary exceptions, she transcends the material. She transcends her, what's the best word? Um, it was a contentious relationship with James Kahn. Yeah. And there were moments when it served their performance. And then there were moments like you could swear Khan wished he were anywhere else than on screen with Bette Midler. Not since Walter Matthau and Barbara Streisand in Hello, Dolly, have I ever seen two, two characters who's like, wow, you two really don't like each other. That's fascinating. Um, and we can talk about what Khan brings and doesn't bring to the movie. But, yeah. but if you love Bette Midler it's hard not to love her in this movie and then maybe be a little disappointed for her. And the, the other thing is the failure of this film crushed her. It just devastated her. And all you need to, um, all you need for proof of that is to watch her golden globe acceptance where she is simultaneously so happy and so bitter at the same time that America turned its back. And I, I think I can tell you because you probably weren't even alive then. Um, I will tell you that Desert Storm had just started. And so we were having what was in essence another stupid war being forced upon us. And it was a quick war, but it right as the movie was opening, we were in the thick of Desert Storm. And I think that just wasn't palatable to the movie going public. I think, you know, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the folks at home, I, I, yeah. Um, and I just, yeah, it was not the menu of things that they wanted to see when they had other things like, you know, the Prince of Tides and Bugsy. And, you know, I think back in those days, I mean, I think they had re-released Silence of the Lambs for Christmas, even though Silence of the Lambs was like a February 91 film. I think they had re-released it. So you had other, other option but i was in the theater on christmas day and i was watching it and when i checked in with um my 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 gaze of a similar age we all loved this movie we yeah. we all loved it we we recognized it for what it was but we were so damn happy that to give bet oh my god let's let everybody in the world see all the things that she can do and she went on to do Gypsy on TV and then Hocus Pocus. She did the, the next year. She does the next to the last episode of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, which is one of the greatest yeah. moments of... I mean, I start crying just thinking about that. It was one of the greatest moments of television ever. So in a weird kind of way, this cemented her stardom so that she could do all those things in the 90s that she wanted to do, but at the same time, it kind of crippled her movie starness. She was never, ever, ever going to successfully be the lead of a major motion picture. She was going to be relegated to either projects like that Suzanne picture, Suzanne um, Valley of the Dolls, Valley of the Dolls. God damn, what's her uh, name? Uh, uh, Jacqueline Suzanne. Jacqueline Suzanne, the Jacqueline Suzanne picture, which 
tonally was so off and wound up not working. Um, uh, isn't she great? That's what it's called. And then, um, and or things like Hocus Pocus, yeah. you know? So she just redoubled her efforts in her recording career. Um, but, you know, right about 1991, that woman could ask for anything and get it. She'd done beaches. She'd done big business. She she was huge. So there you go. That's how yeah. the movie happened. And, and it's, it's a performance that works even in the scenes where the movie has gotten far afield from like the initial premise where the the first hour is all spent in the 1940s and early 50s where she's this singer that gets a job as this uh USO performer with uh uh James Conn's comedian that doesn't like her but they end up having this begrudging uh, uh performing career together and I would have liked to see I mean I think all of that stuff works really well she's great in that Khan is doing the best that he's doing in this movie and that correct he goes he once we leave the 40s he goes straight downhill yeah uh you have a cast of characters that you're interested in and it's doing interesting stuff and she's really good because she's like it's maybe the most uh diverse of what you see her doing even on that first night that first night of performance she does the comedy routine where she's getting a bit blue with the jokes just sort of uh on a whim and then she does uh, uh, stuff like that there, which is a great number uh, physically and vocally and just like the way she's carrying herself in that it like I, I mean, I, I posted this on Twitter that I was doing this movie and got a, a, a bunch of different responses. You got, the pre- you got the predictable bitches of Twitter giving their responses and, you know, it, and yeah. OK, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Some Fine. People, I don't yeah. care. I don't need them. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, one uh, uh past and future guest Ronaldo Sosa uh, was talking about how like even if the movie doesn't work especially that scene the stuff like that there scene is magic it just like that you could have that scene alone uh and it it's just perfect because she's well, a would, stage performer that's right. like I would yeah I would actually amend that to the entire scene that is set in the hangar is a level that the film never ever meets again the whole hangar seat the the intimate moments are brilliant the comedy moments are brilliant the backstage scenes are brilliant the interplay between her and khan is brilliant the band stuff the girl dancing the faces of the soldiers the lights be i mean every single moment it's like you should have just made that movie folks yeah was what you should have done. Just stick it in the 40s and not try to tell us about 50 years of American history through the wars because it just gets more downbeat and more depressing. And, uh, and, and it, I, I it just totally know what they focus. were trying to do. Yeah. I totally know what they were trying to do. And a history of the USO would be a really interesting thing, perhaps for a TV miniseries. Yes. But maybe not for a big budget Hollywood film in 1991. Um, the, 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 the big problem for me, with as good as that scene was, the framing device with the flashback, and the first time she walks on stage in that makeup, I gasped. I yeah. like, oh my God, what have they... It's, it's such bad old age makeup that I, I I remember thinking it's like no no someone what did that person must have gotten fired I mean what how and then I'm thinking how did she agree to go on in it and I'm just gonna spoiler alert go all the way to the end and then we see what James Conn looks like it's terrible and it's it's, it's wild it's, 
I mean, if they could, if they could have the, I mean, I know, I don't know if there were Razzies for makeup, but this is exactly a movie that deserves a Razzie for makeup. These makeup artists should have their union cards taken away from them and not be allowed to work in film ever again, because the makeup is just, it's, detrimental to the film yeah it uh it, it kept reminding me especially with that of another movie i did on this show earlier this year that's also a like a flashback framing device of uh performers over the decades it felt very mr saturday night uh oh, yeah. in that regard yeah, yeah. exactly also terrible old age makeup uh in that one and just like yeah but uh but yeah, it's it's really bad makeup, and I'm I'm just remembering it now. Even though I just finished watching the movie like an hour ago, it's it's striking how bad it is. I actually uh, remember because I can say this because I love her, and if anybody else said it, I would slug them. She looks like Jabba the Hut. It's it's so, it's just so caked on. It's it's, it's so too horrible. Much. Yeah, and, and like even. And, and like Collins is even worse because you look at her and you can still see like, okay, I can see Bette Midler under there. You look at James Conn, that might as well be a different actor that's being dubbed over by James Conn. It doesn't look a thing like him. It's wild. Yeah. Uh, but uh, back to what I was saying, and I, I think uh, this is just going to be one of those where we go off on all our tangents. Uh, I but, go um, ahead. But even when the movie is getting far into like Korea and Vietnam and like all these things that are getting far away from the stuff that works... I think Midler, by and large, still works mostly. There's like one or two moments where it's... uh, There's one moment in this movie that feels genuinely out of Tropic Thunder or something like that, like a fake movie within a war movie where I think it's in Korea, but I could be misremembering, uh, where there's a, a soldier who's been like, has gotten his leg blown off and she has to apply the pressure on it. That, and like, yeah, that's... Yeah. And the blood just splatters all over her and it looks so fake. And she has to be like, no, hold on. We're going to we're going to save you. And he goes, are you Dixie Leonard? Am I going to be okay?" And like, it's so overwrought in a way that's like, this is this is the most it ever feels like a quote unquote vanity project. The most it ever feels like we're going to lionize this character. By and large, it doesn't really fall into that. It, It it stays restrained. And just that one scene feels so. Like, it could have been so much worse if it was all this, like, un- unaware of itself. Uh, and, you know, a-, a moment like that made me thankful for how the rest of the movie is surprisingly reined in, again, given its reputation. Well, Rydell's stated, Mark Rydell, the director's stated goal for this film was to have you laughing one minute and crying the next. He really wanted that. He wanted you, I think the line was, he wanted you to leave the theater leaning on your friend or your date for support because you're so moved by it at the end. Um, And he really felt that in order for, that in order for us to really understand what the American journey of war was from 1944 to 1991, was that we really had to see how bad war was. and I, I, I'll say it's a choice. I'll say it's a choice. But what you wind yeah. up with is you wind up with, oh, now we're in a different movie. Oh, now we're in a different movie. Okay, now we're in a different movie. And that's really hard to pull off. And, yeah. um, so, so tonally, because the movie wants to lurch from one thing to the other, um, that's probably the main reason why people who, uh, you know, don't love Bette Midler enough to let her 
take you through the seven the seven gates of hell um you you it's it's not going to work for them um but i the Rydell was doing the best he can with the script but the script is really bad and yeah. the what had happened was it had gone through the the it had gone through over 40 drafts and Marshall Brickman was brought in towards the end at Rydell's insistence to get the war stuff some real authenticity to it and i think that's why the lurching tone shift is is so so noticeable i i i think that is exactly what mark rydell wanted and i guess he got what he wanted but i don't i don't think it serves it um yeah uh, uh, so but she plays that whole thing she plays that whole thing uh, in korea with the sleeping with the sleeping with jimmy she plays all of that that scene she does really well she plays the dinner in Yokohama with the Admiral and the firing of Uncle Art. She plays that incredibly well. She has this thing where her arc of anger goes into the red. And it, it happened there. It happened in Gypsy. It happened. It's like, okay, I get it. I get it. And I think she does actually calibrate it. But for many, many people watching her do that, she's just too goddamn big. And I'm telling you, seeing it on a big screen, that full bet screaming at him, it's a lot. And so um, I think for for people who are not people who are not um, comfortable with her sense of extreme and her sense of commitment, um, you know, come on with me. You're going to leave with me, and Danny won't leave. And he sits there, and she pushes. That pushes pushes him into the into the cake and all of that stuff, um, and then we get we get to the the one scene for me that the writing really just it doesn't work, and that is um, old Dixie and old Eddie in the dressing room having that final let's talk about what happened yeah. fight, and in the middle of it, in the middle of the fight, she says to him. Don't leave me. I need you. And it's like, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? What is happening? And then he comes back and starts yelling at her. And that moment is gone. So I re what Dixie does with the, I'm going to go up here. I'm not going to go up here. You shut up. I'm going to appear. I'm going to get here. I'm not going to appear. It's like, it's all yo-yo stuff for dramatic effect. We know she's showing up at the end. Why are you putting us through this? I think that stuff alone made the movie 10 minutes longer. Yeah. Um, so and she does absolutely the best she can with it. You know, she can, she, I want my son back, you son of a bitch. I mean, all of that stuff that in, that in, a, that in a, a lesser actor's hand, those badly written lines would be the cliches that they are, but she manages by just force of will, she manages to claw into them and make them live. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The emotional stuff in this works more often than it doesn't. There's a few things where it feels just, again, on a script level more so than an acting level, a bit overwrought and a bit like, oh, well, this is the point where her son gets shot right in front of her eyes. This is the point where she moves all of the, the you know, horny uh, soldiers in, in uh, Vietnam to, to uh, you know, silence and con contemplation by singing In My Life, like a, like a sort of snoozy rendition of In My Life. And, and here's things like that and it, it, it 
there's there's moments where I'm more embarrassed for her for having to do what the script is making her do more so than embarrassed for her on a performance level. I, I think she maintains her dignity even when the movie seems to be actively working against it, even when it seems to be like trying to push her towards these cliches. I don't think she ever falls victim or she rarely falls victim to, you know, making a fool of herself in a script that would make most other actors make a fool of themselves, especially on such a prolonged timeline of she has to, you know, age 50 years over the course of this movie and be a diva and be big and be loud and boisterous and, and make these dirty jokes. And there, there's moments that don't always work, but she does her damnedest to make them work. And yep. I, I was I was surprised at how well, again, considering the reputation that it has, uh, that she's able to pull to come out almost entirely unscathed from an otherwise pretty lackluster movie. The, okay, first of all, slow rendition of In My Life, that's fighting words. Um, and Oh, yeah, uh, that, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not of, the most upbeat of, song. No, yeah. no, no singer more than Bette Midler, no singer more than Bette Midler has more signature songs that she has to sing when she does concert. She could do nothing but, these are my signature songs, and that's an evening. Because yeah. something we have a saying um, in the the theater called awesome but wrong, where something, the power of it is clear and the intention is there and it's everything, but it is the wrong thing for what you are trying to say. And the Vietnam sequence is full of it. I totally get, I totally get end of in my life, the flashing of the peace sign, Everybody gives the peace sign back. And what do we see last? We see three Vietnamese children giving the peace sign. And then we see a soldier holding a very young Vietnamese child who also gives the peace sign. Cut to the first missile of the bombardment being launched. And it's like, really? Yeah. And he goes into slow motion and does the whole see, And I'm literally sitting in the theater in 1991 going, no, you're not. No. And as he does that, I'm still crying. Okay. That's the yeah. thing. I'm crying, even though I realize this is ridiculous. Um, and then Christopher Rydell, who is the director's son, who didn't do a lot of acting, um, he does such wonderful face acting in this film. His He's giving us right up there and close, you know, what Danny became and what, what the Vietnam experience is like, how it's so much different than previous wars. Um, and then having him get shot. At, 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 yes, she just happens to stick her head out of the tent just in time to see it. And then she has to run to him in slow motion and cradle the thing. And it's like, it's very operatic. Dave Grusin's score is all over the fucking map during this. At one point from his big orchestral stuff, this giant electronic guitar comes in and it's just like, oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. Could we, you know, and again, the slow motion sequence in Vietnam lengthened the movie by another five minutes. Now, I don't know if we played it at a regular speed. I don't know. I, I, and I, again, I know what he's trying to do. Good for you, Mark. Put it in a different movie. Um, because it really is, it's it's so, so over the top. Um, and poor Bet has 
has after that, you know, she's so constrained and we've moved ahead and she's got her little bar that she's doing and she's, you know, she's now really getting much older. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's just, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one for me. Um, I'm trying to think of, there's another thing of a bet perform another piece of her performance that I want to know. Um, I do love the scene at the end when the photographer is taking pictures of him and she goes, Oh, that's a nice camera. Can I look yeah. at it? No. And then she opens it up and yanks the film out and says, you want pictures of me? You ask me. I love it. I loved that. Yeah, there's Um, a lot of good, just like like snappy dialogue that feels... She gets great lines. She gets great lines. Uh, Her first line in the movie, or one of her very first, is uh, this this, PA from the the big uh, award ceremony or whatever shows up and she just sort of like appears in a doorway and says who are you and he goes miss leonard and she goes i'm miss leonard care to try again and it's stuff like that just like you know it feels very just like you know just natural snappy dialogue she again for this character that is surprisingly good at comedy she's not a comedian but she goes out on stage and just instantly wins over the crowd and is a bigger hit than eddie sparks than the comedian that's there and she's like that's what she's supposed to be and not every singer not every performer also has that comedic timing down and she obviously does and it's it's again really instrumental to making this character work and you need someone who can sing and be funny and you know move around and be very you know uh, uh, she follows up the stuff like that there the big sort of comedic song with uh, P.S. I Love You and sort of drifts through the crowd after the lights have gone up, after the power has gone out. And it works just as well. It's a it's a genuinely, you know, moving scene. That... Alone in the dark with thousands of men. There is a God after all. What a it's great so line. Good. It's so good. Yeah, again, if you just keep it in the 40s, if you just keep it as here's the story of this bickering USO uh, uh, do- double act in World War II, that's a good movie. That's a that's an entertaining movie. You cut an, you cut like forty minutes off of this runtime, uh, and it's a great movie. And and it just peters out for the last like ninety minutes of it, and it's a real shame. And to to be to be fair to to Mark Rydell, um, he knows where his bread is buttered, and he films her like a movie star at all times. Yeah. Uh, angles are brilliant. The lighting on her is brilliant. The fact that they allowed that fucking makeup to happen, I don't know. But let me tell you, it's like you have no doubt you are in a you are in a film with a star. And Eddie's part is not it. Yes, it's Dixie's story, but he's just as important because of the connection to Danny. He's just as important to the story as she is, although he does, you know, there are scenes when the emphasis is on her and whatever, but um, let's, oh, and let's, let's just not, um, let's just not uh, disregard how wonderful George Siegel is as Uncle Art. The, the, the Santa Claus scene could have been better written, but Siegel acts the hell out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, Their problem is, is that that tone sequence, that tone change there. Because we have to, we have to go from um, different era to different era to different era. And if you are watching this movie in 1991, um, the Red Scare was 40 years ago, and some people are going to have it have to have it explained to you. And but all of a sudden, Uncle Art 
has communist tendencies. You've seen nothing of it before in the film. Patrick O'Neill, a character who is supposedly one of Eddie's friends who's known him for 18 years. We haven't seen him in the movie. And he shows up and says, you got to get rid of Uncle Art. And it's like, what the hell is going on? That's really ham-fisted. It's, that, that just does not work. And what winds up with that whole sequence is we, we segue from cliche to cliche about the red scare and it's you know uh, um even though her face is fabulous at you know she maybe has two lines of the play luana the uh, the great rosemary murphy playing luana the gossip right. column did you do this luana what did you you know i just i see her face was was brilliant um but but when khan is allowed to underact when he can just be small and tight He's really good. That whole exchange between him and Art, um, I, it's it's just it's just wonderful. It's 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 mostly when he's with Bet that he's just unforgivable. I do love I do love um, Eddie's drunk wife. I love the yes. drunk wife. Yes. Um, that whole it's very small bit, but man, it's done really well. Yeah. Uh... Because it seems like we're moving on to the rest. I'm of the movie. sorry. I'm, no. I'm just... Oh, you're totally fine. It happens. Yeah, uh, but is there anything else we want to say about Bet specifically? Obviously, we'll I... we'll come back to her as we talk. Uh, well, I love her mommy scenes. All of yeah. her scenes as a mommy really get to me from from the beginning where she sings the little lullaby um, to you know all the all the different things. Um, uh, even when she's even when she's disciplining Danny when he's twelve in the nineteen fifties, um, the and the scene with the two of them in Vietnam where she's trying to help him understand that Eddie doesn't get it. Um, I, yeah, no, I love that. That was they gave a lot of care to that, and I think she carries those scenes off brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, I, I especially like the scene where she's. Uh, confronting him about you know, forging letters to get him out of school and just like you know trying to be mother and father and just like trying to take on every role while she's also away from home all this time or or not really able to be present but she's trying her best to be in this one moment and it 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 works again better than i i thought because it, it's just another dimension to this character that she's doing a good job with and and yep. yeah it's is good stuff uh, uh, yeah, her, her ability to her ability to toss off i i again back to the hangar scene in the 40s um the nervousness before she has to go on the ripping of the dress and then the all of a sudden she sees the british the british captain and goes oh captain so yeah it's yeah it's it was tailor-made for her yeah very few people could have pulled this off and uh i, I think she does a very good job with it i do want to point out that um Two of her signature jokes in the piece are too vulgar for the era in which they were portrayed. The well, I know something verbal, but it was my heart. No, sorry, not in the forties. It would. It, you might have done it in a military setting, but I don't think a woman would have done it. And I know why they did it the way they did it because they really wanted to set her up as you know she will say anything. But the one on the commercial for the coffee, Sectorine Two, Sectorine Four is fabulous. It would never air. Yeah, it would. It it would not ever happen. Of course, the the bit is they're doing it live and it catches the sponsor. But yeah, no way, no way in hell. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff like that, and I feel like that might be a good segue to talk about the rest of the movie and talk about the script. 
Well, that's our show. We hope you liked it. We sure like doing it for you. And until next week, remember... I remember you. I'd like to say that you're... You're the one who made my dreams come true. You're usually dead. Without a head. This is a goal. And lots of natives are picking their teeth with your bones. I remember, too. Oh, what a, a dream. distant bell. It comes at night and taunts me. Which we've been talking about in general, but it is uh, overstuffed, I think is one way to put it. Uh, uh, 145 minutes for this movie is kind of untenable and i imagine like that's what people have the biggest issue with like when talking about this as a quote-unquote terrible movie terrible performances because so much of the good stuff is so front-loaded and is so you know by the time you've sat through the last 90 minutes of this movie that's so much painted your your perception of the first hour which is really good like all, all around good it's it's a good movie for an hour which is unfortunately not even half the runtime of the movie. Uh, and there's just so much stuff that doesn't need to be here. And it just, it really sags and it really, really breaks the movie that you, there's another almost like, like an hour and a half that just, do, like, there's so much extraneous stuff over that whole 90 minutes that you could chop or like cut entirely or shorten or or just i don't know how how do you make this a better movie how, what other than keep just um, just setting it in the 40s no you, i yeah. i actually i actually think that moving forward from the 40s you focus on the onstage performances of the uso and you pull all of the combat and war is hell scenes way back and you give us just one thing, not bombs being blown up and your son being killed and the, the girl in the white dress being killed. And all that. It's like, hey, you know what? You can show the horror of war. But Rydell wanted to show the horror of war. But I'm thinking, because if you look at that Vietnam sequence, the performance in the Vietnam sequence and what they're able to explain to us with the go-go dancing girl, which is the same bit that they did in the 40s, except there's no stage for her to be on, to be away from the audience. And the soldiers are right there. Um, and when it gets out of hand, because they start dancing with her and then dance in honor, um, and he has to come in and break them apart. I think that's really telling and really important. And that told me more about the change in the attitude of the soldiers than anything else. I thought that was, and and it turns out that the USO sequences were part of the original script and all of the combat stuff, that was all Marshall Brickman coming in at Mark Rydell's insistence. Um, and I guess, I guess the other thing about why it, you know, eventually became two and a half hours is every time they felt they had to, had to add something, they didn't say, oh, well, we'll just take this other thing out because the things they're going to take out are bet. And they're not yeah. going to take out bet's moments, okay? And then you've got to deal with Jimmy Khan's ego and you can't make his part smaller. So it, it you try adding things to a script that's already, you know, 121 minutes 
And yeah, everything winds up being a keeper. So that to me, that to me was the, uh, I don't know, Bet was executive producing, but I think it was Bonnie Bruckheimer who had the final call. Um, and I, I don't know who had final cut on this. I didn't have a chance to see it, but I'm just wondering if they should, because because 20th Century Fox was really high on this. They promoted the hell out of it all through November and December. Bet was everywhere. Um, Jimmy chose to not go out and support this movie. He didn't want to be, but in interviews, he did. He he didn't wait. He basically said, "Yeah, working with Bet that was hard. I, you know, I didn't, you know, okay, that kind of stuff." So, but 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 Bet was out there, you know, doing a you know interviews and good housekeeping and you know morning TV and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think once I, I I want somebody to tell me of a movie that we are now going to take you from era to era to era with the same characters. And I want you to tell me a movie that does that really, really, really well. Because yeah. if you keep trying to cram things into it, that's what the miniseries is for, people. Are you watching um, Fellow Travelers on Showtime? I'm, I am I was just uh, looking into that last night. I don't watch a lot of TV, uh, but it, like it's one of those that seems interesting enough that like if I did pick up a new series, that would be a... a heavy consideration for me because it seems like an interesting premise and like just an right. in, like I, I i like matt bomer and and, and it's yeah covering four decades of gay history in the united states as seen through the eyes of these two guys and it goes back and forth it has the time and the room to tell these stories so that everything isn't just a bit a bit a bit so yeah um it's I I would not recommend making a movie like this for for uh two and a half hours for a release. See, now I, I I'm fully aware that this film is not Lawrence of Arabia, but I'm tired of people saying the movie's too long. I don't like long long movies. You'd sit through Lawrence of Arabia, fucker. You know. Yeah. But if a movie's that good, I'd sit through it. Yeah, you know? a movie has to be able to justify being that Correct. long. Another Correct. one that I've done on this show that also follows the same uh, character over decades and decades and is longer than it needs to be because it's just overstuffed with kind of the same thing. Uh, Mr. Holland's opus is oh, also like two and right. a half hours. And if it's an hour 40 and if you cut out some of the same thing that it does over and over, it's more interesting. It's better. And, and it's, that it's really kind of fascinating because Dreyfus is bulletproof in that performance. Yes. The same way that is bulletproof in this. Um, yeah. He transcends every error of the direction and every bad script bit, and he makes everything work. And it has a completely weepy conclusion that just I cry at every single time. I would, yeah, wouldn't yes. miss that one for the world. And also has a a, a parent and child connection yep. over yep. a over a yep. John Lennon song. So yep. I have that go. in common too. Um, we haven't really talked all that much about him other than just sort of in passing, but James Caan is in this movie. Certainly. that That's one thing I can say about him. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have that much to do beyond the same. He's just the same the whole time for almost the entire movie. And it, it's, it's a, it's a one note thing that he can do very well. James Caan is very good at playing a grouch, but, for for the, ostensibly the co-lead of this movie in as much as there is a co-lead you'd want a little bit more from him it took me so long 
to realize that the movie was trying to position him as like a father figure to Danny because it like he doesn't really do anything different with him. No, it's just no, the not same, at all. Uh, just sort of like removed shtick that he's doing of like I'm an asshole and everyone bow down to me, and it works in some points. I I, I like the bit where he does the big I'm sorry number to like apologize uh, right. to Dixie, but like other than that, he doesn't have a whole lot to do in this one, and it's just he he's just sort of there for the most it's- part. It's the nature of the story that they're trying to tell. Um, in essence, uh, James Kahn is playing a version of Bob Hope. Yes. Okay. And Bob Hope was a, 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 a comic and did more for our troops during three different wars than any other entertainer. And he was, he was out there and he'd be USO and kept going and going. And all Bob did was tell jokes, banter with whoever his guest stars were, and carry a golf club and make golf things. Crosby very rarely made appearances with him, so he didn't have that Bob Open Bing Crosby thing that they were so famous for. He was out there doing his thing. And in many ways, whenever he's with somebody else, Bob Hope was the straight man. Yeah. Straight men are never interesting. Um, that is not a double entendre. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. But they're just, they're, they're the ones who set up the joke so that the other person gets the laugh and that's the nature of it. And so it's really hard to depict that kind of a life because they don't do a lot that holds our attention as an audience member, unless they have such an unnaturally sparkling personality that we are compelled to watch them like Billy Crystal does for half of Mr. Saturday night, but not the other half. Yes. Um, um, And um, so, and his, and yeah, his family is, is their cardboard, even though the wife is hysterical, their cardboard, the daughters might as well not even exist. I think Um, they maybe have one scene. Do they have, right, are they yeah, even in but, more of the movie? Right, but then, but then we're we're supposed to understand he wanted a son, and we're supposed to understand that that's why he and Danny, you know, become so, you know, and he's got that that macho thing with the fifties where he's walking through the TV studio and pointing out all the girls and how to get girls, you know, blah 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 blah. Um, uh, and then for me, the heartbreaking Eddie thing is Vietnam when he is so out of touch. He is just yeah. so clearly, well, we're going to go there and get those guys. Yes, sir. Once we find them, you know, it's so, so he's only given these very narrow things to do and he does them. But when he's head to head with bet, he loses almost every time. Um, yeah. And I think he just got tired of being eaten alive by her on the screen. Um, it's very interesting because the year before was misery. And he lay in that bed and let Kathy Bates chew him alive, but he ultimately gave as good as he got because there's a there's an arc and a, a there's a release of the tension that the character gets to have. By the way, interesting little fact: they wanted Bette Midler for Annie Wilkes, yeah, and he turned it down because she thought if I play that part, people will think I'd like that. <laughs> so. Khan and Midler are were apparently destined to work with each other. You know? Apparently so. Um Khan is a credible song and dance man. Yeah. There is a 
80s movie that I can never remember the name of where he is like the ghost of Sally Field's ex uh, former husband and now she's dating Jeff Bridges but the ghost won't leave her alone and the ghost is like a a Bob Fosse Fred Astaire song and dance guy and Khan is really funny in it he's really good but for the most part there are very few James Khan performances on screen where I haven't looked at that guy and said god I bet he's an asshole and apparently he is so yeah yeah I, I just looked it up by the way that movie is called kiss me goodbye Thank uh, you. Seems interesting looking at the pictures of it and him in it. Well, Sa- Sally Field is another one of those people that I, I, she transcends bad material. So I'll, I'll watch her in anything. Yeah. Um. I, I read. I think this was just on IMDb or something. But, uh, and you know, take it with a grain of salt because it's on the IMDb trivia. Uh, but <laughs> it's talking about how like critics at the time were talking about how Khan felt miscast and if they had swapped him and george siegel it would have been more interesting which i agree oh, I with saw that. uh but there, it was just like because of misery and because because khan had had this career revival while siegel hadn't uh, right. uh, uh he ended up getting top billing i don't know if there was ever a time where it was considered to switch the roles or if that yeah. was just like you know editorializing on whoever wrote that uh on imdb but i i think this would have been a much more interesting movie if you had george siegel in that role as a more charismatic asshole because you have Khan in this and he does the asshole part great and he's not as as good with not the Not charismatic at all. No, no. And Siegel is. Siegel Siegel could have played Eddie Sparks uh yeah. really well. Although I'm sure what they would have done is made Eddie Sparks a banjo player and there would be banjo numbers because Siegel's always calling out the banjo. He's yeah. wonderful at that. Um um the the other thing about Khan, let me think. Well, you know, the man came to fame as the pugnacious Sonny Corleone and got an Oscar, a very deserved Oscar nomination for it. And I don't think his career ever recovered from it. Um, I think we all just kept expecting to see Sonny. And um, and so he would do these things. That, and by the time he was cast in Misery, his, his star was on the wane. He was not... Yeah you know, commanding the big paychecks like he used to be. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think this is my third and I think last uh, James Conn movie that I've talked about because I've done Misery and Chapter 2 is the Marsha Mason one. Oh. Uh, I get you know the what? title of that and starting over in the and same. Look at, right. And look at, and look at Chapter 2. What does he play in Chapter 2? Shut down grief. That's all he's given to play in that. All the fun stuff goes to Marsha Mason's character until he, like in the last 20 minutes of the film, he finally comes alive. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, poor poor James Conn. He doesn't, he does not have the acting chops to do the kind of roles that are are not well written to make him shine. You know, yeah. Siegel could do it. Siegel could do either of those roles really, really well. So Yeah, and he, he like you were saying earlier, he is very good. Siegel is very good, especially in the Santa scene. Oh. Just like in general, as like third, fourth, fifth most interesting character in a scene, he rises above that, and, and you, you're drawn to him because he's just charismatic. He's just interesting and fun, and with very few lines, makes you pay attention to him and makes you like care about this character that isn't necessarily inherently interesting. Yep. Uh, yeah. But he's he's very charismatic in that. Uh, and it's a shame that he's just entirely out of the movie 
once the character gets fired. Like he doesn't even have a scene. No, 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 no. He shows up in he shows up in the bar to tell her that Eddie's sitting outside. Oh, right. That he, is him. He brokers the reunion. Yeah, and is given like to the point that I had forgotten that that was him because it's no. it's not no. it's basically not a role that could be anyone that could be any of the other uh, people from that. There, there's he's just he's the character is underserved, uh, but Siegel does a good job with it. Um, in as much as a character like that can be underserved, where he's not the focal point, but uh, he's good. There's no one else in this cast I really want to talk about that we haven't oh, all, already briefly mentioned. Oh. I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, starting off, the Billy Dick number at the beginning when she's in the recording studio, her two backup singers and the pal is the legendary Melissa Manchester, the singer who started off as one of Bet's original backup singers, the staggering Harlettes. So Melissa Manchester was an original Harlette and is there playing her pal. The other person that none of y'all would know was a, a woman, a Broadway actor from the 80s named Patty Darcy. But Patty Darcy sang backup on so many albums in the 80s. It's ridiculous. Cher, um, Prince, I mean, just name it. And then Patty Darcy died too early and we didn't get a chance to see her do other stuff. Um, the woman, I've forgotten her name, the woman who didn't go on to much of a career, but plays the female writer in the 40s scene. She's given these little sharp little things to do back and forth, and she plays all of that beautifully, adding to the texture of that scene, and then she vanishes. Norman Fell sticks around, but she's gone. I don't know what she does. Um, and then it's a stupid part, and it's in the framing device, but I love Ari Gross. I love him in this. He brings... And he's like one of those actors who had, he looked like he was really going to do something. And then he kind of, he's still acting. He's still doing stuff, but boy, oh boy, he was late eighties, early nineties. I thought, wow, you know, just that post kid era. And I thought, I thought he holds his own with bed and all of those scenes and the fixing of the record player and the getting her to the thing. And Dixie, just close your eyes and, you know, or talking on the phone to his asshole boss. I liked him. So I thought he, if I had to have that stupid framing device, then he worked for me. All right. Those yeah. are the only people in the thing. Then there's just things about the show that I think are the movie that I think are important. Right. Oh, I did actually, uh, I did have one kind of thing to say about other actors in this, which is just that even if I didn't know Billy Bob Thornton was in this, he has one line and I was like looking down at my nose and I was like, oh, that's Billy Bob. Because it sounds yeah, yeah. like his voice is just so specific. That, like, he sticks right out. Yeah. Um, And then also Xander Berkeley, I noticed just like, oh, is that Xander Berkeley? There's no way. And I looked it up and it sure is. Uh, same year as T2 where he's got the the spike through his mouth. Uh, right. Uh, good for you, Xander Berkeley. Uh, uncredited Arliss Howard, I already said. Um, notes in general, what else do I have? Uh, there's a lot of points in this movie where I'm writing notes about, like, this has gone on for this amount of time. I'm still liking this. What are people talking about? And then eventually it gets to be like, okay, I get it now. Now it's I see going what on. Talking. Yeah. Oh, um, there's a, uh, most of the songs in this are, you know, standards, they're covers, or they're in my life, but there is. Uh, as far as I could tell, an original Diane Warren song, because of course there is, that plays that's, like, 
third in the credits. It's not even the second one because in it, the credits sort of play song, out. It's it's the song she sings to Danny. It's the Dreamland song. That oh, she is sings it? To Danny. Yeah. I I must have missed it then and then only heard it again in the ending credits because I wasn't paying attention to it or I wasn't looking out for it early enough. So I guess I missed it then. Plus uh, she but... also plus I think Diane Warren co-wrote the 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 song that plays over the end credits that isn't in the movie. Uh, all coming back to you know. Oh, oh uh, that's the one I was talking. About. I guess the, I guess okay. there were two Diane Warren songs. Yeah, uh, er, yeah. uh, Every road leads back to you. Every road leads back, to which you. is uh, the credits go out over whatever whatever song is the last one, and then it's a, a baby. It's cold outside that Midler and Connor do, right. and then it's like a minute of Every Road Leads Back to You. Right, um, and both of those songs are on the for the boys CD. Yes. On the on the, the record uh, cast recording of the film recording, um, while we're talking about music, um, this is another one of those things that if there was a category for um, outstanding film, God, I don't know what his credit is. I know that as the credits are rolling, he's got his own name on the screen and his credit is there, and it's Mark Shaman. Right, and Mark Shaman started off as a piano player, accompanist to the stars, and he was an early bet accompanist. And on this film, if you like a placement of a song in the film, it's because Mark Shaman chose it. Yeah, um, bet, bet says Mark helped me pick all these things. If you like uh, the way that I remember you is used in the film, and it's used really smartly. Because um, it's Eddie's signature song and everybody goes, me, me, me. And then, of course, it's going to have to pay off at the end and everything. But you know the one in the 50s thing where Bet sings a counter melody? Well, those lyrics are not part of the original song. That's Mark Shaman writing again. Yeah. Uh, and so that man, along with Billy May and the composer Dave Grusin, provided really good music. Because, you know, if you're going to do a Bette Midler movie, you better have good music in it. But, you know, Mark Shaman went on to write movie scores do you know the first wives club yes you know the you don't own me that closes that yeah that arrangement is pure mark shaman yeah and when bet appears on the final johnny carson and she sings an up-tempo amazing version like she sings a down version of uh in my life and on the johnny carson thing she sings an up-tempo miss otis regrets with believe it or not jennifer lewis as one of her backup singers because jennifer lewis right. was a let for a while and mark shaman is at the piano and did that arrangement so yeah mark shaman is a genius yes yeah the the music is is deployed really well throughout the movie uh th that was a category for a while on and off of like best adaptation, adaptation song score. score there's like 10 different names for it in the 70s and that's kind of yeah. it but uh yeah, if that category had still been around in 1991, I could see this showing up there. Because also, the rules, would the rules of the rules of the music branch are labyrinthine. I yes, can't and... change them myself. Fuck if I know if it, if movies would you know would work or not. But yeah. even even the music that isn't supposed to be good, that incredible over the top America, the beautiful ballet that opens yeah. the. Yo, that arrangement is amazing. That choreography is so bad. I love it. And I'm just thinking, oh, what that must have looked like on screen. Yeah, that I, I they actually managed with the, the different eras. They managed to get almost all the TV stuff right. They What it looked like, what it felt like. It was really lovely. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a, 
it's a fun again if you had leaned more into that if you had leaned more yeah, into yeah, the like, stuff all works yeah yeah that that that's a more interesting movie than there's all of like what is this movie saying new about war what is this that that hasn't been done in countless to the point that like in all the slow-mo people dying in vietnam it's just like 10 different willem defoe's at the end of platoon yeah and, uh sorry yeah Oliver Stone did it better and he did it first. So leave it alone. Don't do it. And the scene with, where, uh, again, at the beginning of Vietnam where they have the showgirl out and then all the, like that's straight out of Apocalypse Now. Like all of yep, these things, yep, yep. all of these observations about war have been done better in other movies. And it, it, it just sort of, it's a real head scratcher of a decision to lean into that as much as you lean into the other stuff. And it, it, it brings the movie down. Uh, but, I don't know. It's the movie we got, and and oh well. Uh, is there anything else? Wrong. <laughs> yes. Uh, is there anything else we want to say about the movie itself, or do we w- want to move on to the Oscars? Let's move on to the Oscars. The nominees are Gina Davis in Thelma and Louise, Laura Dern in Rambling Rose. Jodie Foster in The Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Bette Midler in For the Boys. Susan Sarandon in Thelma and Louise. Okay, so as far as precursors, uh, this gets a handful of citations here. Uh, at the Golden Globes, Bette Midler wins Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. Uh, beating out Angelica Houston in The Addams Family, Ellen Barkin in Switch, Kathy Bates in Fried Green Tomatoes, and Michelle Pfeiffer in Frankie and Johnny. Uh, that was a, you know, before I had seen this, uh, when it was just the the reputation that it has that, that sort of precedes the movie, I was kind of scratching my head at that, but I see it now, especially with the backstory that you've given about, like, uh, not just how much they were, you know, promoting the movie, but also just all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Like, that. that makes sense as a win, generally. She's also doing a lot of comedy and music which helps uh to have have both of that uh, it's and also the not foreign, and the hollywood foreign press love bet and yes. so that makes sense yeah it makes all the sense in the world uh also nominated for best original score here uh beauty and the beast wins that also nominated uh at play in the fields of the lord bugsy dead again and robin hood prince of thieves which is an interesting lineup uh, i think only two of those go on to oscar nominations if i uh, remember my research right uh, and then at the Chicago Film Critics uh, Bet is nominated for Best Actress I think I read somewhere that she like came in fourth place if they did a ranking uh, Jodie Foster wins that going on to the Oscar it's the full Oscar lineup uh, Foster and Midler Dern Davis and Sarandon plus Annette Benning and Bugsy and uh, oh did I write this name right Anne Perico in Nikita uh, the, the Luc Besson original that he would then remake as La Femme Nikita. Right. You're right. Oh my God. I completely forgot about that movie. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. As far as a uh, precursor citations, she gets the globe win, uh Chicago film critics nom- uh, nomination, and then an Oscar nomination. And uh, sometimes has, that happens. Yeah. She has friends in the Academy. Um, she was on a run of great films. 
because I cannot stress to you how big Beaches had been. Beaches yeah. was enormous. Um, and the it seems that there was no way that Jody wasn't going to win. And it seems that there was no way that Susan and Gina weren't both going to get nominated. I think Dern for Ramblin' Rose was a brave Academy surprise because I would be inclined to have put in Mary Stuart Masterson for fried green tomatoes if you're going to yeah. go with a charming Southern thing. But but Dern, Dern's kind of amazing in Rambling Rose. It's just her best scenes, her best scenes in that movie are her scenes with her mother played by, you know, her mother. And Diane Ladd is an acquired taste. Yeah, yeah. And you either love her or you hate her. There was no way that woman was going to win an Oscar, but there was, for her being nominated as many times as she was makes sense. But yeah, she was, but there were, um, there were other performances that year that were sort of in the mix, but that didn't really show up. Um, and uh, it was not a big movie, but God, it was good. A, a movie called The Rapture with uh, Mimi Rogers and her conversion to religion. It's so, find it if you can. It's so good. And it really had that um, independent buzz and people were talking about it. And if it were the era of Andrea Riseborough, Mimi Rogers could have maybe gotten in somehow. Um, they talked about Annette Benning and Bugsy, but when I go back and I watch Bugsy, uh, Benning doesn't deserve a nom for this. Um, uh, so there you are. And then she gets knocked up by Warren and doesn't get to do Catwoman. And we are given Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. So we will always be thankful to Annette for that or to Warren for that. Yeah. But the one, the one that really got away, there was no chance it was going to get nominated because it was the wrong kind of film is Nancy Savoka's film Dogfight and Lily Taylor's performance in Dogfight. And it's just, it's a River Phoenix is a Marine and they're in San Francisco and they're yeah. going to go to Vietnam and, and they have this bet about who can pick up an ugly girl and bring to a party. And he, oh, it's so good. And Lily Taylor, who I don't think I had known about before that movie. Um, she probably had done stuff. She's so good. And so, um, but I do think that the the five women who were Oscar nominated were probably going to be Oscar nominated. And I don't, I even though Bet is probably clearly the fifth of the five in terms yeah. of would vote, um, I still think she belongs in the, in the in the mix. So there you are. Yeah, I still need to see Rambling Rose. Uh, it's it's just it's been a one of those weird things. weird movie. And the yeah. and the thing that saves it is that Martha Coolidge is directing it, and her female because this is a this is a movie about a young woman who is so attractive that everybody notices her, and they all they all in one way or another want to fuck her. And it's just like, what is happening? And it's depression, 30s South. And you're, you're watching and you're going, and then there's a really, what's the right way to say this? I will say uncomfortable scene between Rose and Lucas Haas as a 13-year-old boy, and it involves sex play. Um, and it's just, what is happening here? Huh? But there's no arguing with the fact that Dern is luminous in it. There's no arguing. Yeah, I, I have been meaning to get around to it, and uh, I I wish I, but it was a a a, a busy weekend, we'll say. Uh, Dude, for this one, yeah, you told yeah. me. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I I think you are right that probably no one else was going to crack this lineup, even if Midler wasn't as 
uh, present uh, in, in you know, I actually want to look up who uh, was BAFTA nominated and, and who was like Globe's drama uh, otherwise, just to like get a, another uh, sense of what else was in the conversation. But I think there's a Michelle Pfeiffer for Frankie and Johnny at the Globes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She was in the uh, musical comedy. Um, and then in drama, it's yeah, it's Foster Davis, Dern Thrandon, and then Annette Benning in Bugsy, who I would guess is probably sixth just because Bugsy yep. did so well and she had been nominated the year before. But like, have I don't you know. Re-watched, have you rewatched The Grifters? I watched it, I think, when I did the Misery episode. Oh my really good God, in what a brilliant movie. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh, and that's maybe one of the bleaker films I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone's great in that. that. That's a that's a great one. That yeah. if it hadn't been, you know, Kathy Bates and Whoopi Goldberg, I could see either right. of those right. two walking away with an Oscar because they're both so good in it. And Cusack too, for what it's worth. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, He's, that, he, again another actor that never quite gets his due. It's very sad. Yeah, uh, and then also at BAFTA, uh, Foster wins Davis and Sarandon, and then Juliet Stevenson and Truly Madly Deeply. Oh, uh, this is the year of Truly Madly Deeply. Yeah. Oh, oh God. Which okay. also uh, Rickman is nominated for it. Yes, too. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of places things could have gone uh, that just didn't. I'm just looking at what else. Um, I mean, it was they were never going to go for Linda Hamilton in Terminator Two, but that's, <laughs> no, that's a a, a you know, solid, great performance. What else in this year? Um. I don't know if they would have put uh, Amanda Plummer in lead for the Fisher King. Uh, so probably mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Jessica Lange in Cape Fear, probably not. But no, no. Uh, She's playing the wife in that movie. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I, I don't remember anything she does in it. It's been right. a while since I've seen that one. Uh, but yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I don't think anyone else probably would have overtaken Midler or Dern here. And the other three, like you said, were never not going to get nominated. Uh, so yeah, it's an interesting year. It's an interesting year in general at the Oscars. I mean, when you have Silence of the Lambs sweeping, it's going to be an interesting year just because that's so outside of their usual type of movie. And then Terminator 2 wins for Beauty and the Beast as uh, the first animated Best Picture nomination. Uh, John Singleton is the first uh, black best director nomination. Uh, is is Callie Corey the first woman to win an Oscar for screenwriting? That can't be right. I, I feel like a was. that yeah. Uh, there's I there's just a lot was. of. I I would believe it. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. There's just a lot of lot of strange stuff going on at the Oscars this year, and you know, strange and good. Uh, it's, it's not. Oh, a year where like oh what were they thinking these are some out there picks these are like out there picks that hold up a lot better than most of even what they're doing in the early 90s and in general so uh is this my only time i get to talk about this year it might be uh yeah it looks like no well no city slickers uh jack yeah, Collins, you can talk about yeah. yeah um but oh this is something that i 
And every oh, time sorry, before. sorry. I have to. Here's a footnote. We have to go. Callie Curry was the first woman to win for screenwriting since Frances Marion back in the 30s. Right. Frances Marion won for the Big House. Right. There we go. Um. Oh yes. Oh, uh, this is something that I keep meaning to bring up every time I do one of these, and I keep forgetting. Um, but unless there's like a a category in the 30s or 40s or something that I haven't checked, I think. The 1990s Best Actress is the only category that I get to do every year of for a decade. <laughs> every year of the 90s, there's at least one lone acting nominee in Best Actress. Oh, uh, yeah. And sometimes it's just one, like this. Sometimes, like the year before, there's three out of five. Uh, but you know, it, it is a fruitful decade for actresses. In you know, Every decade is a fruitful decade for actresses. It's like... Uh, all of the other categories, I think there's like around 60 nominees I get to do in Best Actress, there's 90. Uh, but yeah, this is just something that I, I keep forgetting to bring up and now that I'm doing another one. Long, long, before, long before the internet, when I first became obsessed with the Oscars at around the age 12, I kept all of these, I kept all of these facts and figures in a notebook by hand and I used to notate oh this is the only film from that year that the only nomination for that year for that film and i used to have all of this all the way up until about i don't know somewhere in the 80s when i stopped keeping the notebook but yeah that was that was those were things i was always looking for um and then i remember finding um a big because i worked in book selling and libraries for years and um and i remember finding a big fat um book about baseball called bill james baseball abstract which is this, you know, it's like a thousand plus pages. And all it was, was all the stats, all yeah. of the stats on everything versus everything compared to everything else versus this year. And it was like, I looked at that and I said, well, that's what somebody should do for the Oscars. I want to do that. And then the internet yeah. happened. It doesn't matter. So I don't need to do it now. So, oh, yeah. Although there's still, there's still like this, as far as I could tell, I don't think I had seen anyone compile this specific list of lone acting nominees before Correct. I went, I I mean, by hand with the aid of Wikipedia, but like I had, right. I went through year by year and found all these. Yep. And uh, th there's, there's still stuff out there uh, to be documented. Um, this is an, an uh, just a non sequitur, just scrolling through the 1991 Oscars. Um, I do think it's funny that someone won an Oscar for shooting JFK. <laughs> That's just a a, a joke I, I like to throw out there that uh, Robert oh, Richardson. God. Best cinematography is stupid, but um, uh, there aren't really that many other categories to talk about for For the Boys because no, only uh, music in that category had existed this year. That's really the only yes. one. It I mean, kind of worth talking about original song in that there is a Diane Warren song, and so <laughs> you know, I know, but, but uh, she she wasn't guaranteed in a nomination every year back then. <laughs> yes, but it, it's three from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, when you're alone from Hook and everything I do, I do it for you from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which like, oh. I don't think this was going to get in there with with oh, all those. Man. No. Uh, and that's maybe about it, because like, obviously not James Caan or George Siegel or Mark Rydell oh. or any oh. like, uh, well, we did mention the makeup, if not, you know, favorably, uh, but sure. the makeup nominees this year, Terminator 2 wins. And then Hook and Star Trek, uh, the Undiscovered Country. I wonder if this made the bake off. I wonder if this <laughs> was even 
Oh, I would hope not. I would. I would hope. hope not, but like sometimes it is just most makeup, and there is a lot of makeup, and oh, I don't God. know. I, I, the Wikipedia page for that category only goes back as far as 1999. Uh, although I'm pretty sure they had Bake Offs, you know, as far as the category existed, they had like short lists, but I don't know if those are documented anywhere. But uh, it's it's really interesting. It wasn't until. The inner the inner um, workings of the branches of the academy. You used to like in the seventies uh, and even into the early eighties. You did not know what the shortlist was. They didn't yeah. announce it. the only ones that the the shortlist got announced were foreign film and documentary because you had to prove that you'd seen them right and if you were academy. But otherwise, you didn't know that there was a cinematography shortlist or who was on it. Uh, I that that they were they. They were deservedly so incredibly scrupulous about secrecy yes. and about not letting anything get out. Because if you go back in time and you see what the quiz show scandals of the 50s and the 60s did to the television quiz show industry, the Academy said, no, we were absolutely right to be this circumspect. No one gets to know anything. We will know because because there was always pressure release the vote totals release the vote totals no they'll i don't think they'll ever do it so yeah uh which it would be interesting to look at some of those but also it, it kind of not ruins the magic of it but it, it 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 makes it a little less fun i guess yeah in yeah. a way i don't know i don't have much else to say about this movie at the oscars because what else no. is there uh, uh exactly exactly yeah and and like i said i'll go back to this year for city slickers so i'm not putting a cap on 1991 in general uh but uh, i'm just so glad to have an opportunity to talk to somebody about that so this is great yeah yeah uh, uh in that case do we want to move on to our closing thoughts what are my closing thoughts well i i this is a kind of movie that will never come back. And yeah. the only movie like this that I can think of that I love as much, acknowledge its flaws as much, but will watch every single time it shows up in front of me is New York, New York. And they're, they're very similar movies in my heart. They're very similar. Um, and, uh, and these were attempts to resurrect a bygone version of the art form but i we're just you know we're just not gonna get those we're it's sorry go yeah. go rewatch go rewatch it's always fair weather or singing in the rain or something and be happy with be happy that turner classic movies exists there you are exactly exactly i, I couldn't have said it any better myself uh so in your fantasy world where you get to pick all of the nominations what nominations would you have given to for the boys? Um, absolutely to bet. And then I would have figured out a way to give a special Oscar to Mark Shaman for being so awesome. Um, uh, he's one of those guys that down the road, the music branch should really think about how do you acknowledge all the things he's done? Cause a lot of the stuff he does, he has done for movies don't fit in a category and he's brilliant at it. Um, music supervision, stuff like that. Um, I can't find a way to get Siegel in there. Um, uh, yeah. I would have loved to have George Siegel get another Oscar nomination other than Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But I am also one of those people that believes in 1966, all four of them should have gotten Oscars. That's the year it should have yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, but 
but no, I can't. I can't do anything for Siegel. I don't think the art direction set direction is as going to go up as high as a level as the others. Costumes, same thing. So no, no, it's 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 going to be bet. And if you could find a way to do music, those are the only nominations it deserves. Yeah, I am. I am right with you there. I I like this nomination for bet. I would keep it. Otherwise, uh, with what I'm given, no. No, I think this is uh, this is one of those cases where they got it right as far as nominating her and ignoring the rest. And uh, isn't that special when it happens? You got it. Uh, in that case, thank you so much for coming on. I had a good time talking about this with you. My pleasure. Have me back anytime. I've got a long list of movies that fit your ca- fit your criteria, and I'm happy to talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is there anywhere uh, people can find you? Anything you want to plug? On all of the social media, I am Walter Giant, one word. So you can find me on any of my social media things. And no, I don't have anything to plug. I run a theater in San Jose and I work at a library. I work at a school. I'm a school librarian. No, I don't have anything to plug. Right on. Uh, you can find this show on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. That'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Dear, I thought I'd drop a Yesterday we 